And so what the banks did is they just stopped foreclosing in Nevada. Like, like literally just, it just stopped. And so what happened to all those people in default? I think a large percentage of them still have never made a payment or still are in their house today. So the question is this, how do most agents find the secrets to succeed in today's competitive real estate market, especially when the top agents are keeping those secrets to themselves? That's the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. Hi, I'm Aaron Amuchastegui, and welcome to Real Estate Rockstars. Real Estate Rockstars, this is Aaron Amuchastegui, your host. This is a really unique Real Estate Rockstars recording because we are combining this recording with the weekly GoBundance Asset Class Expert talk that we do. So a lot of you listeners have heard me and a lot of our different guests talk about about our GoBundance Mastermind and the different items that we've been doing. And so this is one of those calls where this weekly we get together in GoBundance and today I decided I wanted to interview a good friend of mine on here and get to talk to him and publish it out to you guys first. So go by members. You guys are hearing it here first. You're going to be able to ask questions at the end. And we just oh, ask everybody again, show. check that mute when you're in here. So, let's see. And everybody listening, there's 50,000 people listening to the podcast right now, but there's about 100 people in the GoBundance room as they're coming in. So guys, help me make sure everybody's muting as we get going on this. But now is my big intro. Today, we get to interview Sean O'Toole. So Sean is the founder of Foreclosure Radar and Property Radar. I'm super excited to get to talk to Sean to you guys today because the I started buying foreclosures in 2009. And right prior to that, Sean was the guy that took foreclosures from this business that nobody knew how it worked. All of that property data was just rough data. People would have to look at the newspapers and gather stuff from the month before to really see what was going on. And he took it and he was able to bring it into software, kind of institutionalize it so people could scale. I would say that Sean's software, Foreclosure Radar and Property Radar, has created more millionaires than any other software around that's out there. So the so Sean, how's it going, man? It's going great. Thanks so much for having me. What a great group. Yeah, the it is fun. Sean got to join us too up in Tahoe for a little bit, the his hometown. He got to show me a little bit of the stuff out there. And we thought this would be a really unique time to come on and talk about market and real estate predictions. And really, a lot of the times we were chatting lately, I, w- I would ask Sean about inflation, about housing prices, about what he's thinking thinking next. And he's been looking at and analyzing distressed real estate for longer than so many people. And we had some really interesting conversations. So every time I get to talk to you, we have so much fun. And I thought we should we should record this, let everybody listen and see see what's happening. So the, why don't you give a bit of an intro of how you created Foreclosure Radar and Property Radar before we start digging into the stats? Sure. I had a career in Silicon Valley, three different uh, venture capital-backed startups. And after the dot-com crash, moved out to my second home and ended up flipping everything from small houses to large industrial properties, uh, about 160 altogether. And at the end of 2005, I just got really scared of the the market and uh, pulled out, sold everything, uh, end of 05, beginning of 06. Um, but I was tracking every foreclosure in California and all the way through the sale process, not just the notices like you typically get. 
and realized there was something pretty interesting going on. Tried to go out and do the big short and uh, got talked out of it and uh, ended up launching uh, Foreclosure Radar, uh, which I started later in 2006, launched in May of 2007. Uh, the first six months or so, everybody rolled their eyes at me like foreclosure data, that's stupid. There's no foreclosures. And uh, by January of 2008, I was being interviewed on 60 Minutes and uh, about the foreclosure crisis. So uh, it was a wild year. Yeah. It, just there, you talked about two big guesses that you had. And that's why I thought it'd be so much fun for us to get to come on here and do some kind of wild predictions. And I can al- already see some people in the chat saying they use property radar that's out there. And so any of you guys that are that are live with us on here on Facebook or on the Zoom call, put your questions in the chat. Our last 10 or 15 minutes, we're going to get to them. Sean, one of the first things you said is you sold all of your real estate in 2005. Yeah. So the That was probably almost as high as prices had been. Like It didn't quite peak for another year or two, but that was the top of the market for all intensive purposes. What were the triggers then that you said, we're at a peak in two... Because very few people sold in 2005. Yeah. Very few people sold then. I, what, were, what were your clues back then? I was insane. And it was the dumbest decision, dumbest thing I could ever do was to leave. And uh, they all kept going. Yeah. So... Yeah. Uh, so there was uh, both quantitative and qualitative measures, you know, put on my little data science uh, geeky yeah. hat. Uh, the quantitative measures, right, were that I saw a slowdown in sales and that I saw inventory start to rise. And that was kind of the very beginning of it. You go back and look at inventory charts for the nation. You'll see that they rose quite a bit in '06. So that was kind of the quantitative side. On the qualitative side, you know, I believe in getting out there and, and being out in your market. And so uh, I met some home buyers uh, that were buying one of my properties and it was a, a maid and a field worker, really nice young Hispanic couple. And, uh, and I just like, well, wait a second, this is a $450,000 home. You know, and this is a home that sold two years earlier for 150, like prices are skyrocketing in this area. And I said, you know, and I was just like, I, I don't understand, you know, either these professions pay a lot more than I think they do, or what are you doing? And as I got to talk to them, they were qualified on a pay option arm mortgage and based on the option arm payment. And I said, well, that's only going to work for a little while. And then there's no chance I can make the payment. And I just, I didn't want to sell them the house. You know, I just knew it was going to end in disaster. And I started looking at that and seeing that that was happening on a wider scale. The other thing I was doing was going into the new home builders in my area and kind of just checking in with them, like, what are you guys seeing, right? And earlier, 05, 04, right, there's a line out the door on every new release. And, you know, investors are trying to get in there for a new release so they can do a quick flip um, because it was just so hot at the new home builders. And uh, one of the new home builders said, we're giving away a free swimming pool now. We're having a hard time closing deals and we got to get this rest of this subdivision uh, closed out and we worked a deal with one of the local swimming pool dealers. And I went, wow, if the guy next door bought with, you know, bad credit on a pay option arm and the guy next door gets a free swimming pool, he's going to be pissed. He didn't get a free swimming pool. His credit's already bad. He's going to walk. And just that combination of qualitative, quantitative stuff said, I'm out. Yeah. There are so many signs back then. So I was a home builder during that time. And I remember a Morgan Hill project that we had and it was, things had definitely started softening and we were deep in there. And some of our ad- advertisements started to say like, 
that buy a house will give you solar panels. And then it was buy a house will give you an electric car. Like the, I mean, they, they were $650,000, $750,000 houses, but it was like, what can we do to now release these things without lowering prices? So at that peak, we, nobody wanted to lower prices because as soon as you start lowering prices as a home builder in that volume, that could start some of that spiral stuff too. So instead of lowering prices, it was like, what could you give away? What could you add to it? I remember that. When I first started studying That's foreclosure- That's what we learned. I mean, I think this is a really important point, what you just said, because it's we learn from each of these crises. And the things the home builders learned from the 91, 92 crisis was, right, was not to, not to just push prices down because it just hurt everybody and it pushed it down fast. And so I think what you described there was them trying not to make that same mistake, you know, in 2007, 2008. So, you know, we do learn each time we go through one of these things. Yeah, there's even little, little projects. So there was a project that we had worked on that was north of Santa Barbara, and there was only 55 houses in that neighborhood. And it was going fine, going fine, going fine. But then as soon as someone did a short sale or a foreclosure, like one out of the 55 houses sold for 350 instead of 550, then all, everyone started letting their houses go. And I remember being so confused, like, I, I don't get it. I don't understand what the trigger is. I don't know why. Yeah, part of it was the equity. And then when I started getting into foreclosures and studying foreclosures, the arm like what you talked about. And I don't think we have those today. But I remember looking and researching the foreclosure documents at the courthouse as I was trying to teach myself this process. And it said, you know, your payment is $2,400 a month up until this day. And on that day, if you haven't refinanced, it was getting reset to like 9,500. It was, it was crazy. And that to me was this big wide open thing that I, even, even as working at a home builder, I had no idea how crazy those arms were. And then it made a lot of sense. It was like, oh yeah, on refinance day, if you can no longer refinance and your payment triples or quadruples, of course, people are going to walk away from their houses. So I bought my first house back in 1980, was it seven? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe 86 um, with a pay option arm. Been around for a long time. The difference was back then, and I think it was a great product. Um, and it was actually designed to help avoid foreclosure, which is the craziest part of the whole thing. The difference is, is back then they qualified you based on the full payment. And what they did in 05 was they changed that and they started qualifying people based on the option payment, the negative amortization option payment, which only lasts for a short period of time. And so you had this really great product that ended up getting vilified because it got misused. Yeah, I could totally see the difference in that. They say, hey, we're going to let you start making lower payments as long as and, and when we analyze like rentals and investments right now, we say, well, if the rental cash flow is going to cover no matter what, even if we have a little bit of a correction, it was kind of the lenders back then said, hey, even if we have to go up and, and you can pay it. But yeah, that was significant changes in, in rental amounts and really makes that, that adjustment. Another thing that you mentioned the, at the very beginning, the clue in 2005 was months of inventory. And we used to stare at months of inventory charts all the time. Even when we came back in, in, like when we were getting into foreclosures in 2009 and 2010 in the Sacramento area, when I bought my first foreclosure in 2009, there were some zip codes that had kind of recovered and we're now doing two or three months of inventory. You know, so we said, those are the places we're going to go invest in. So we'd look at these months of inventory charts and go, all right, the months of inventory is healthy here now. So now we'll go back in. Um, and then there were still some places in 2009, 2010, months of inventory was still six or seven. It hadn't started decreasing yet. We said, we're not even going to buy foreclosures there. Right now, months of inventory are like less than one month everywhere. 
So I'm looking at these symbols saying, if the like, are is this? Do we have legs? Do we not? You know, and I've been talking a lot, saying it feels like we still have legs. There's a lot of these symbols out there. These a lot of these signs of people boosting the prices up of the same thing of people with normal jobs making so much money in real estate and get you know taking all these loans. What can we when we look at half a month of inventory or one month of inventory? How can we use months of can we still use months of inventory as a prediction of is the market going to continue to sail the way it's sailing? I mean, I, th- I think yes, but it's it's a question of how far out and whether you're investing or speculating. And I think this is a really important part that that some people miss, right? So if you're using months of inventory to w- predict what's going to happen on a new home subdivision development that's going to take you three years to build, that's probably not the best indicator, right? I'd be looking at a lot of other things too. You know, if you're looking at a property you're going to flip next month, you know, yeah, having really low inventory, the chances that changes dramatically over the next 30 days is probably pretty safe. Yeah. So since COVID hit, I'm going to, I wanted to, I'm going to pull up a chart that shows a little bit of, of what's happened out in Texas, but I know you have your eyes on foreclosures in, in, in so many more places. Yeah. So out in California, do, do you know how, what, how many foreclosures you were seeing per month getting posted before foreclosure hit and, and what you started seeing after that? Yeah, so it was around uh, 4,000 notices of default and, you know, somewhere around uh, 2,000 notices of trustee sale. So pre-foreclosure and auction each month, kind of pre, uh, pre-COVID. And, you know, looking at last month, we're 1,600 uh, notices of default and 600 notices of trustee sale. So, you know, less than half. 30%, something in that, that area. And that's up a bit. We definitely had some much lower uh, lower months, you know, in the hundreds even of new notices of default uh, in California. Obviously, we still, you know, there's moratoriums and other things going on. Those don't apply to all properties. So we continue to see some foreclosures, but it's, you know, and, and let's keep in mind, you know, last April was really low, right? A lot of my trustee sale investors have been got it for a long time are like, I don't know, if it makes sense this low. So, and it's down from there. So it's, it's down a lot. It's fascinating how close your California numbers are lined up to what we've seen in Texas. So if we look back to, you know, years past, so 2008, 2009, these are the Texas foreclosure postings. That blue line is number of postings there. So 2005 was the peak. That's when foreclosure started. 2009 is when we saw more foreclosure. And this is Texas data. But I was in California at the time and it feels pretty similar. So 2009 is when I started buying foreclosures in California. So around 2009, we're getting 100,000 postings a month in the state of Texas. And down right now before COVID, state of Texas, 5,000 a month, 6,000 a month, really similar to California. People yeah. have talked a lot about shadow inventory, foreclosure inventory. Now, I started, I created this when, when COVID kind of first hit trying to predict what would happen to try to explain. So normal postings is this yellow number. So historically tracking, you know, for the last several years in Texas, we would see four to 6,000 a month in postings. And, but what we saw post COVID was less than 2000 in postings. So this is what, at the time I was saying, these are like shadow postings. This was in a nice, healthy market. We'd see 6,000 postings a month, but now we were seeing 1500 to 2000 because of the government intervention. And we should have seen, you know, a thousand sales every month, but instead we were seeing a hundred. Now, I don't think this is how it's going to play out anymore, but originally I thought, okay. And I was looking again, we had 
a moratorium here that was a robo, the robo signer moratorium. Yep. And so then we had it go down. It went back up when the moratorium lifted. And then the hedge funds started entering the market, buying a whole bunch of stuff. Less people were in foreclosure. So it started kind of going down and stayed average. Well, the, when you look at like how much is now in that shadow inventory, as, it was, as stuff was starting to build up and get worse and worse. And I haven't updated this since, since January, but right now it looks like foreclosures aren't going to come back to full steam until like September. And if that built up, that'd be like 50,000 in shadow inventory. But I guess the reality right now is a lot of those are no longer kind of in foreclosure. Uh, that wasn't counting people going into forbearance and things like that, but those are just normal foreclosure postings. But I, I think one of the things that I, that I thought was interesting with that is I just went and looked at a bunch of the postings that were in Dallas County in May of last year. I was expecting a bunch of them would be sold. Like, hey, they were in default. They had equity. It's this rocking market this year. Those would already be sold to third party and not be coming back. But most of the ones in Dallas have not sold yet. So most of the ones that were posted in May and June last year are still out there, still owned by the person that was in default before that happened. Have you looked at any of the stats in California around that? Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that like on that shadow inventory thing and, and comparing back to those other time periods you were thinking about, a big difference is right now prices have been, you know, ramping up, right? So as those prices come up, people get more options. And, you know, so that is going to erode some of that. And I think that's why that number isn't going to be what we think it is because of what's happened with prices and what's happened with equity, right? We've had incredible growth in equity as well. Real Estate Rockstars, this is a commercial break from our biggest podcast sponsor we have right now, Rent Ready. It can be fun getting a new real estate deal, but it can be tough managing your properties after the fact, especially if you're long distance investing or trying to manage multiple properties by yourself. That's why we're here to tell you about Rent Ready. RentReady is a property management software that not only makes it easier to manage all your real estate deals from one platform, but they also have the best customer service support in the biz. They're an all-in-one app that lets you easily manage properties, collect rent, list units, screen tenants, sign leases, all from your phone or computer. Imagine all of your real estate doors right in your pocket. How awesome is that? The best part is it's so affordable, one flat price for everything. Unlimited properties, tenants, and support with a real life human. And I have to add in there, that's a new business model that not a lot of people are doing. There's like this freemium model where people say, hey, you can try this, but as soon as you grow, it's going to cost you a lot of money. Or they kind of punish you when you get too many emails on your list or too many comments. They aren't going to punish you when you grow. They're not going to charge you more when you get 10, 20, 30 rentals. They're going to charge you the same when you have two or three as they will when you have 50 or 60. So you have a nice fixed cost, all software, all in one place. Check it out, RentReady, R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com. And if that's not enough, RentReady is giving our listeners a special code you can use to get a whole year of RentReady for just $54. Use code R-O-C-K-S-T-A-R-50, that's Rockstar50, and sign up for RentReady's annual plan at RentReady.com. Again, R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com with code Rockstar50 to get RentReady for only $54. So, you know, I think one thing to look at there is, you know, one, people haven't, they have options now because they have equity, but thanks to the foreclosure moratoriums, they can sit in their house <laughs> and enjoy it rent-free 
And, and then when it does come time that, okay, the moratoriums are lifted, et cetera, they still have that option to sell, yeah. right? So, you know, that combo is not a great combo for, you know, really large foreclosures. Are we going to, are there going to be people who, you know, lost their businesses and the banks aren't going to give a break? Absolutely. I do think we're going to see a rebound in foreclosures, but it may not add up even to be the total of what would have normally happened over this period of time. Yeah, I think I agree. I think that I think that we'll probably see a spike of a few months that's, you know, maybe double or triple our normal posting count. Maybe it's that maybe we're getting 10,000 a month in postings or something like that. But at the beginning, I thought there would definitely be a landfall. Years ago, when there was a hurricane in Texas, they didn't do any auctions for three months down in the Houston area. The first month that came back, they posted them all for auction in, in that one month. So we saw this giant spike. They went from giant, yeah. you know no postings a month, no posts to twenty seven hundred, and the average was nine hundred a month. So the so I was picturing, okay, Texas will do the same thing they did before. But again, we learned from the past. I think a lot of the lenders now are trying to, if they do have any control over it, the now that prices have gone so far up, do you think they're gonna? I, I, I'm guessing they're gonna work with buyers more. You know, even like they don't have a reason to foreclose right now for the most part. Yeah. I mean, I think the other piece that's, that's important to understand that's different from 2008, right? Like pre-September of 2008, banks were required by regulators and I'm not blaming regulators per se for the foreclosure crisis. Lots went into it, right? Back to politicians with Graham Leach, Bliley, et cetera. But, but regulators required lenders to get bad assets off their books you know, as timely as possible, right? So I've got this big book reference book on my desk of, you know, the foreclosure timelines for every state. And if you were, uh, uh, you know, handling the bad loans at your bank, your job was to follow those guidelines as closely as possible, right? And you were held accountable by your managers and by the regulators themselves to yeah. do that and get that cleaned up. And that's how we ended up with such a tsunami of inventory on the market. Then once it's on the market, you're required to sell it at whatever price it will sell for. And so you keep dropping the price and dropping the price till it sells. And it doesn't matter if that price is zero. That's your job. You have to sell that asset at whatever price you can get. And around September of 08 and into 09, right, they started to go, wait a second, this is probably a bad plan. And... And you saw this at the state level and at the national level of, hey, let's force these lenders to try to keep these people in their homes. Let's force them to give them, you know, forbearance agreements and loan modifications and have workout sessions and all this stuff. And that's still the regulatory environment we're in today. It's how do we keep people in their homes, not how do we get bad assets off the books? That's a massive difference. And I don't think we will ever see a wave of inventory from foreclosures like we saw then. And not that we won't see more foreclosures. I do think we will see more as we just talked about, but not that kind of wave. You know, when we first were, t- when you and I first talked maybe in like August, September of last year about one, of, I said something like, well, the government can't take back that many of them. Right. And you told a story about kind of Nevada, like 2013 the, is that a, is that a story you could share? Like, is that like the, the, is that something? I mean, to some degree it is conjecture, right? Like don't have like hard evidence, but so in Nevada, they passed a law 
So one of the, one of the really interesting things about this business, like so, there's two types of foreclosure throughout the U.S. Because some of you are in different states, right? Yeah. There's non-judicial foreclosure, which just happens through uh, postings, right? And uh, a trustee gets assigned, and they can walk this thing through foreclosure with no court involvement. And then there's judicial foreclosures, which is about half the U.S. And the court goes through and approves the the foreclosure. So. A trustee in a non-judicial state, right? Like you'd expect that person to, a trustee kind of implies, right? That they have an obligation both to the borrower and to the lender. Well, they don't uh, under law. Well, Nevada went in and changed that and said, no, a trustee does have this obligation. A trustee has to be an attorney. A trustee has to be a licensed attorney in uh, Nevada. That was a big deal because, Bank of America bought Countrywide for their foreclosure servicing capabilities, Mm -hmm. and they were acting as trustee while they weren't licensed attorneys in Nevada. So that like it shut down uh, Bank of America foreclosures completely. They had to redo all of them with uh, an attorney in Nevada. The other thing they did is they made it criminal, right, to sign a, a foreclosure notice, right, without full information of everything going on. Well, people at banks don't know anything about your loan anymore, right? It's not like 100 years ago or 50 years ago where they got to know you and they sat down at your kitchen table. I don't even think that's 50 years ago, you know, a long time ago, right? That doesn't happen. So now they made these folks criminally liable. And so what the banks did is they just stopped foreclosing in Nevada, right? Like literally just, it just stopped. And so what happened to all those people in default? I think a large percentage of them still have never made a payment or still are in their house today. Yeah. There was and that I big think- limbo period of, because it was, they made it to where if you worked at Bank of America and you're getting paid 35000 a year and your job was to sign it and you signed it and now you actually foreclosed, that person could go to jail. And right. nobody was going to sign a document to go to jail. If it, so then they had all these, they said, what do we do with it? And so this, let's not do anything about it right now. And I think what the, Fed did, as you know, the Fed came in and bought all these mortgage-backed securities. And I think those are a lot of the ones they 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 bought, right? Because they're still sitting on tons of uh, mortgage-backed securities. It's mm-hmm. totally opaque as to what they're collecting on those, what's happening with those, anything else, right? And ultimately, prices over time go up. Ultimately, those people die, they move on, something happens, Right. And those loans get paid off and it just looks like, oh, mortgage-backed securities went down a little bit because of payoffs, which happens every month. And I think we have in multiple states, I think we have an awful lot of people who have not made a payment since 2006. Yeah. That that's fascinating. And the and we and we've seen it on different houses at different times, or people will find Nate houses in their neighborhood and they'd be like, Well, this doesn't make sense. This house has been empty for so long. You know, nobody owns it. I don't get it. Where's the owner? And it's those sorts of examples. There are some that have been stuck in this limbo where there's a lien on them, but the lien doesn't have to get paid and all sorts of interesting stuff in there. So it's funny. I sent you like eight articles we might get to talk about. I don't know if, how many we'll get to talk about it, but I want to talk about inflation a bit. So there's we've we've talked about inflation a lot. We've talked about I don't know how much of it's a, high, a very high percentage of the money in the U.S. has been kind of 
like we call it printed in the last year has been as part of all of this, the stuff of injecting into, into businesses, you know, into people in, in to all sorts of things. And so we've seen this inflation start and we've seen it with lumber. You know, lumber is seven or eight times what it was a year ago. Um, we've seen it in good in goods and services. We've seen it in how long it's taking. So inflation is happening. We've thought a lot, a lot of the talk that we've had is, Hey, the way to adjust against inflation is to buy real estate. And, but then there's also a worry of how bad can inflation get? So the U S has been printing money, a lot of money. And some people say, this is super dangerous. We're going down a road that we, that the U S won't recover from. And other people say, not a big deal. The U S is a world superpower and they can print as much money as they want. What are your thoughts about that? There's a little truth to all of it, right? So first of all, like I think it's important to say that COVID itself is incredibly deflationary, right? So that was a a huge deflationary hit. And so I think think it is good monetary policy personally to print money, to Mm -hmm. reflate the economy, because otherwise you set yourself up for, you know, great depression-like scenarios after something as deflationary as COVID. So I think that that's one that's one issue. Then there's this question of have we printed the right amount or too much, right? If we print too much, it's inflationary. And clearly we are seeing inflation in certain things, right? Housing, lumber, you know, in certain areas, wages now and a number of other things, a lot of supply chain disruptions. I think it's still debatable and I don't know that we'll know for a while is is that inflation more due to supply chain uh, disruptions due to COVID and things getting shut down, or is it mo- more due to we over overprinted, right? We printed too much money, we put it out there. One thing I know for sure is we are not very good at providing that stimulus, right? Like I know I have a lot of small business uh, customers, mm-hmm. and you know they're having and have had for quite a while an incredibly hard time hiring because people they're old employees don't want to come back. They're making enough money on unemployment that it's actually better than coming back. And so they're refusing to come back. And, you know, if instead we'd given those same dollars to that employer to pay their employee, right, then we wouldn't have created that supply disruption. So, you know, I think there's a lot of things and and we would have left the employee in the same better position, even help give them, give the employer money to bonus the employee, right? Well, that's fine. So I think there's better ways we could have, have done that. And that's causing quite a few, quite a few issues. So, but I, I think it's still, there's a question out there is, did we, are we printing too much? Did we do too much stimulus? Is, you know, the infrastructure plan and the rest too much? Is it still not enough, you know, and is what we're feeling right now, short-term supply chain disruptions, due to it being really hard to get stuff ramped back up and people to come back to work that, you know, are still a little shell-shocked. Yeah. They've started to eliminate the extra unemployment in a few different states. I, you know, Texas being one of them, I think that that is going to start to get some people back to work. We see hiring ads everywhere we go. So people are trying to hire. And so I think you're very right that it's, I mean, it's tough to give that many trillion dollars out really quick, right? So the, so figuring out the best way to do it and, and how they did that. And there is also that new demand stuff. So when it comes to, you know, inflation on lumber, is it lumber or is it because more people want to build a house now than ever before? People's demands have changed. What they think is important has changed. People value their house 
And I think, and the size of their house and the amenities within their house more than they did the last maybe five or 10 years. I mean, new household creations way up because the idea of packing a bunch of folks into one house in a world where COVID exists doesn't seem as good as having separate houses, right? I mean, that's just one of many things that are impacting, you know, new household uh, formation, right? And we've been lagging since 2008. The construction industry never really came back to those kind of pre-08 levels. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of new permits getting pulled now. And, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, building activity, but in the meantime, you know, especially in places like California, there's even more regulations. It's even more expensive to build, right? So I think we still have a housing supply problem and especially an affordable housing supply problem that's going to continue to be with us for a while and continue to put pressure on housing. So when people, one of the, one of the times you and I were chatting and I was, I was asking a lot about inflation because inflation is new to me. I remember, I remember the eighties, how strong it was. I remember talking about you know, interest rates back then. And then also like Japan and Japan is that place when we think so much of inflation. And, but then when we and people go, inflation can ruin a country. And then we see Japan and Japan seems to be doing good. I mean, everything costs, but everything is very expensive there. Of all the places I've ever tried, it feels like it's more expensive in Japan than any than anywhere else the they were kind of the first to hit that you know mythical 100 percent debt to gdp you know you're going to be the next weimar republic you know hyperinflation zimbabwe right and yeah. they hit that you know 30 year 30 is it, i don't even know now it's like late 1980s right so 30 plus mm-hmm. years ago we talk about the lost decade but it's now lost three decades right and they have not been able to generate you know, inflation, some prices are high, but like overall inflation, they just haven't been able to create. And, you know, lower and lower interest rates, 40 year mortgage, one and a half percent, like 30 years later, we're just hitting that 100% debt to GDP right now. And people are freaking out. And I think it's a little too early yeah. to freak out. So when you're start, when you're trying to measure inflation in the US today, it resembles some of the same measurements of Japan 30 years ago. Is that yeah? I mean, roughly, right? yeah. Yeah. So the that and there's a I, lot of differences too, right? Like Japan's yeah. a nation of savers. There's a bunch of a bunch of bits in there, right? It, it's you can't make perfect uh, analogies, but uh, you know, I think it's instructive. And I think the difference between Japan and Zimbabwe or the Weimar Republic is when Japan hit that level, right? Where you get in hyperinflation is the rest of the world walks away and says, "Screw it, we're not selling you anything, right? We're not trading with you." Yeah. And, and all the rest. And, you know, so that's the real risk. That's when you get into that really bad inflation scenario we've seen in, you know, you know some countries uh, in South America and other places, right, where people are like, no, we're, we're not shipping you stuff anymore because we don't want to take your money. We don't, we don't find value in it. And one of the things about Japan, unlike the Weimar Republic after World War One, right, they they pissed everybody off and everybody said to heck with you. We're not, you know, we're going to let you fail with Japan. They were such an integral supplier to the world on electronics. Right. Remember in the 1980s, uh, turning Japanese was the song and it was like, you know, uh, TVs, all, you know, everything was cars. It was like, we didn't think we'd ever have a U.S. automobile industry again. At that point, they were so tied into the worldwide economy that we couldn't let them fail. Now, compare that to the U.S., right? We're, we're the world's uh, uh, reserve currency. We have more gold than any other kind. I mean, just on so many levels, we are so tied in to the world that, you know, the chances of us 
you know, hyperinflating, it would, it, we would have to lose world reserve currency status. I mean, it's just such major changes. We're not close to that. Yeah. I mean, that, some of that stuff could happen, but it's not being close to today. Uh, you know, there's several abundance guys on the call today. We did a trip to South Africa and Zimbabwe a couple of years ago, and we were in Zimbabwe, I think the week before it kind of like crumbled. I mean, it's crumbled a few times, but before like they had a, another regime change and we thought it was crazy. We had these hundred million dollar bills like of the Zimbabwe dollars and for a dollar. And it was really just like joke money. You give them a dollar and it was like, that was a crazy level of inflation. But that was the the thing you just said is it reminds me of of the first time we had chatted about it, that Japan was too important for that hyperinflation to really have the doomsday impact that's, that, that was expected of Japan and had happened everywhere else. And the, and I think, and you gave a lot of reasons why the U S is still very important. The, what can people do for inflation? Like what, if they're trying to protect against it or, or we're seeing it. So regardless of how much it is, stuff is costing more. Inflation is happening. Who knows at what level based on it was deflationary now catching back up. What can people do to offset it from an investment standpoint? I think, you know, it, it always comes back to the, you know, uh, basics, right? Like, so if we see a lot more inflation in housing, right, which mm-hmm. I think we're seeing more of than, uh, true appreciation, right? What we're seeing is people would rather own a house than own a dollar, right? Like yeah. a, a physical dollar. So that really isn't prices going up, right? That's the value of the dollar going, house prices going up. That's the value of the dollar relative to housing going down. I think we're seeing more of that, honestly, right now than we're seeing true appreciation in, in prices, especially coupled with low in- interest rates. Housing's incredibly subsidized. I don't think housing's not a free market in America, hasn't been for decades and decades. So, you know, I think that's all important to keep in mind, right? And I think it's such an important part of our economy that, you know, we occasionally make mistakes like we did back in 2008. And that's because it's not very well instrumented. Like in the stock market, we get some millisecond updates. In the housing market, they're still looking at the Case-Shiller index 45 days after the fact. And so make some big mistakes there. But it's pretty heavily subsidized and I expect it to continue to be. And I don't expect it to be you know, let to fall like it did in 2008 again. Doesn't make mean a mistake can't happen or a black swan can't happen, it can. But if you focus on investing, if you, what you're buying has a good return on rents today, you know, if what you bought in 2006, think about it this way. If you bought something in 2006 and it was a good return on your money in 2006 at the very peak of your market, right? Mm-hmm. Would you be stoked to own that property today? Yeah. I, I know a lot of people that, have, that, that say, I, I bought this in 2006. I still have it. And thank goodness I still have it. Right. You know, so there's absolutely, if you're an investor and not a speculator, there's no bad time to buy, right? Like that's, that's, that's number one. So, and if you have, you know, in inflationary times, what you don't really want to hold is a lot of dollars, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, what you want to hold instead is assets that are likely to inflate with, with everything else. And so I think real estate's one of the better of those especially because it can be income producing and and the rest. So yeah, I like real estate. Yeah. I think it's really, when you get to talk about housing, not really being a free market of how subsidized it is and with all sorts of different things and with rates and, you know, how, how easy it is. And it really, a couple, there were some questions on our, our mastermind Facebook group where even just the last couple of days that a couple of guys had reached out and said, Hey, 
I'm seeing good deals right now. Should I be buying them? And the, the answer you just gave is perfect is if you're investing right now, there's no bad time to buy if you're investing. And if you're speculating, if you're buying today, I remember in 2005. Counting on appreciation. I mean, it feels like appreciate, you know, appreciation, inflation, whatever you want to say, these, this price increase level that we're seeing right now, you know, I'm surprised it's sustained as long as it has. It could go longer. You know, you could make that bet and speculate that prices are going to be up three, six months from now. That's risky. It's speculation. It's possible. It's also possible they go flat next month and stay flat or even come down a little. Yeah. The, it's kind of like that arm adjustment. When they were giving people the, 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 the arm loans, they were saying, by the time this resets, you're going to have a raise. You're going to have a new job. Your family's going to be, this is going to be nothing for you. Even that other payment. That's how they were even doing yeah. the, you know, the acceptance on it. What do you, any and predictions for rates? Go, well, that was the, the couple that I sold the, uh, you know, that bought, were buying that house for $450,000. They said, our best friends bought a house last year and they made $100,000, right? Yeah. Because prices have gone up that much. And they're like, we want that too. Like it changed their friend's life for a year. Yeah. What do you, uh, what do you think might, any predictions on rates over the next year? I think they're, I, I heard the Fed saying like, hey, we're just going to keep it low for the, for the unforeseen future. You know, I think big picture, I, I think rates are, are a terrible way to like, you know, I think the Fed's mandate's wrong. They're like, but I, I don't know for sure. What I do know is when we see our next crisis, will be the first time, you know, I predicted back in 2016 that at our next black swan event, we'd see rates in the twos. So I'm just, I'll go on record right now at our next black swan event, our next COVID, our next 9-11, our next, uh, you know, big bad thing, we're going to see rates in the ones. Yeah. I remember you said- There's going to be some of this and that, and they're going to get it wrong and they're going to raise rates too fast and push us into a recession. And, you know, all of that will happen maybe in between. It was, and that art, that article Sean's talking about was you know, five years ago, saying that like, hey, there will be a black swan that will be something like this, and this is how it will perform. And the way the market and the Fed has performed during COVID is what your predictions were five years ago. You didn't know what the black swan event was going to be. You weren't saying like, hey, it's going to be a, a virus or government intervention or any of that. If you look at my slides, though, I had like eight items, and virus was or, or a uh, you know uh, that kind of event was one of them. The, that is, it, it's fascinating stuff. What about crypt, cryptocurrency? Do you think there's, do you have any, any opinion on crypto? I don't like the technology. And it kills me to say that because, you know, I first looked at Bitcoin when it was whatever, honor box or something. And so I didn't like the technology then. I don't like the technology now. And so I never bought in and I, you know, left a lot of money on the table. So don't necessarily follow me on that one. But, you know, <laughs> my key issues were, I don't like its energy use, right? If I was if I was a state actor, I would do everything I can to kill it because I think it's incredibly dangerous for you know for for countries that have you know that want to maintain monetary policy and have Fed Federal Reserve banks, which all countries do. I think we're seeing China start to show some of those concerns now. Even the Fed starting to have that conversation. Um, so I don't like it for the regulatory side. And um, yeah, so, uh, you know, it, it, I, I don't play in it at all, but uh, I find it fascinating and I find it fascinating to, to watch and I find it fascinating to watch my friends, some of who have made an awful lot of money and I'm, you know, super happy for them. I don't play. 
Yeah, it, I, I think it, I think it's fascinating as well. And there's a there's a there's a few guys that, that I've talked to recently that have done really really well with it. You know, some of the articles that I, that we were going to talk about was you know going through kind of construction and prices. That was one of the things that we said w- would help. And so one article from Inman said rising construction costs curbed home builders' pace in April. So costs are up. So the builders are starting to slow down, trying to see if lumber might change a little bit. Another article, Business Insider, says price of lumber is wild right now and it's a disaster for the housing market because people are stopping. And then the home prices will keep soaring through 2023 as construction will fail to meet demand. And so that's an article from Business Insider. So there's a lot of talk about that. Back in 2004, 2005, the home building level, we were looking at like lumber futures and ways that can you offset can you make invest if you're if you're in real estate? Have you do you know much about is it something do people should people be looking at lumber futures and things like that to offset rising construction costs if they want to be a builder? You need to be really sophisticated though, right? To do that. So, you know, certainly like all of your very large construction companies that are doing fixed bids are, you know, hedging on those prices so that if prices do change or go up or that kind of thing that, you know, they can still meet their contract prices. So it's a sophisticated game, um, not one that I'm, you know, super knowledgeable about or have ever played. But, you know, I think to the degree that you are making a bet on a new development or things like that, I think, you know, you should have a hedge strategy, you know, against those things as part of that plan to help reduce risk. You know, I just think that's, that's good business. And it's really not it, looking into lumber futures and things like that. You're not actually trying to make money on lumber futures. You only make money on them if your cost of construction went way up. So it's right. kind of like, okay, so you're really trying to break even. A hedge with looking at futures and things like that is just saying, hey, I'm going to build these 200 houses. I'm worried lumber might go up. I can make this investment. And if lumber goes up, it'll offset it a little bit. And I know I'm going to buy this. And yeah, so I can place an offsetting trade to make sure that I don't get hurt if things change. Yep. That's that's exactly right. You know, I think I think the most important thing that people are missing in this whole inflation thing, like wh- what we always make the mistake of doing, is saying what happens today is what's going to continue to happen, right? So we project conditions today out way into the future, right? And I think lumber prices and some of these things are clearly going to be a problem for a while. Technology is incredibly deflationary, right? Like, you know, our poorest in America are walking around with computers in their pockets that have more computing power than most countries did not that many decades ago, right? Like, technology is incredibly deflationary, right? Like, wages start to go up too much and you replace people with robots, right? You replace the cashier with a kiosk. You, like... We're very good at adapting and you see some of the wealth gap that's being created. It's around that, right? Because if you are on that side that says, wait, I understand. I see something that's changing here. I can keep prices down or lower, which gives me a competitive advantage by automating something, by building a piece of technology, right? And you basically put a bunch of people out of work. The riches there are incredible, right? That's what Silicon Valley and technology has been doing is it's been, you know, taking large 
large opportunities and condensing them to a few people and really, you know, exacerbating this wealth gap. Now, I'm a free, I, I believe in free markets and, and, and all of that, but this is a, it's a really important trend to understand uh, because I think it continues and I think it's got huge impacts on labor market. But bigger picture, we are overall, I only see deflationary trends increasing not decreasing, right? This is why the Fed keeps scratching their heads. We don't know why we can't create inflation. We don't know why we can't get growth up. We don't know why. Well, it's because technology keeps lowering prices. I, I, I hadn't, this is kind of embarrassing to admit. My wife goes to Costco once a month for a run. I hadn't been with her in probably, I don't know, three to five years to Costco. Yeah. And I went in there and I walked down that big TV aisle and I think the last time I bought a TV was 10 years ago when we built a house and we put, you know, like four TVs in the house. And I walked down that aisle and, you know, we bought at the time 4K TVs. We bought kind of nice ones. They yeah. were expensive. I walked down that aisle and saw the price of like 4K HDR. I was like, I was shocked. Like it wasn't like, it was like 10 cents on the dollar from when I bought those last TVs. It's incredibly good. deflationary. That is so interesting because you know I, I did an interview a few weeks ago where we were where me and David Green were talking about we're trying to explain inflation and we're saying hey in 1998 you could buy a Whopper for a dollar and today it's three dollars and fifty cents so it was really saying like how much more would it cost you and turning into how many Whoppers would it take to get this but then there right. are some of the really big purchases so so hamburgers, milk, things like that. Prices, you know, we're seeing that. We're seeing that in lumber. We're seeing that in other things. Technology, that's that difference. I remember, I remember my first TV that was tiny, that was four thousand dollars, and now the seventy-five inch TVs from Costco are fifteen hundred. So it's a, it's a great point that on on those higher end purchases, some of the most expensive stuff that we're making, technology has actually bought brought the price down, even when everything else costs more than it did twenty years ago. But it's doing it for food and everything else too, right? You look at how much uh, farming and you know dairy and all those things are automated now versus where they were. I mean, in the 70s, we talked about worldwide food shortages due to population growth. And not that there aren't food problems worldwide, but like if you think about how much food should have gone up over those periods of time based on if we still had those techniques and those farming practices, what that would cost today versus what it actually costs today, we've had very little inflation, even in those things. So, you know, uh, technology is very deflationary and it really is across all, you know, almost all industries. And, you know, I think as house prices soar, right, mm -hmm. that's going to drive so much investment, which we're already seeing with companies like Plant Prefab and others into automated and alternative building techniques. And how do we use recycled waste to print walls? And, you know, and how do we 3D print on site to reduce labor? And, you know, all of those things are booming right now and getting tons of investment and they will have an impact, right? So these inflationary things that we're feeling today, they won't continue forever. That article about 2023, that might be right, might be 2022. It's probably, you know, it's not going to change overnight. It's probably, I don't think it changes in six months. I don't think it changes in a year. Three years, I doubt we still have, you know, I doubt we still have sky high lumber prices. They may be back lower than they were before this. Yeah. 
they've started, so, you know, there's some 3D printed houses getting sold in Austin, Texas. Now we're seeing that yeah. happen in areas. I remember in 05, 06, when the lumber started, go, well, I guess it was maybe 04, 05, we started importing a bunch of lumber and drywall from China. And then there were a bunch of lawsuits from that. So I think people are starting to maybe see some of that imported, but I don't think it's going to offset it the same this time. So any of you guys that are listening, the, if you have questions, start to put them in the chat. We've got, a, we've got a few minutes left. And so I see there's a few questions in there that we'll get to. But Sean, before we get there, so you started foreclosure. What year did you start foreclosure radar? Started working on an 06 and launched in May of 07. So May of 07. So beginning of 2009 was the first time I attended a, fore, a foreclosure in, in Sacramento. There was three people standing there, right? There was three yeah. people standing there and the we had to, and they wouldn't tell me how to do it. I had to go read the loan documents, go start learning how to do it. And I remember when it was me bidding against three other people. And there was hundreds of houses selling and really we, whatever money we could show up with, with investors, we bought that day. And then there were houses would keep selling while we were like, oh man, I should have bought that one instead. If I'd have known why all this stuff. And then by 2012 hedge funds came in and it wasn't three people bidding on hundreds of houses. There was 300 people in Sacramento bidding on three houses. All of them had your app up. So all of them are using foreclosure radar. All of them are using your, your data. Like, so statewide, if someone's going to buy a foreclosure in California at the time, and you were covering you know, California, Arizona, Nevada, I think. You've recently brought- Oregon, pro- Washington. And Oregon, yeah. Washington. So you recently so launched- launched nationally in November. Yeah. So property radar is now national. So, pro- so and, the, and if you guys haven't used property radar yet- the, I've, I've been a fan since a very long time ago and you type and I even have com- competing software. So Sean and I, we, we, we get to, we get to, you know, put our, put our heads together when we're releasing similar products out there, but I love Sean's product. And the, and so, you know, how genuine that is with me type in any kind of uh, address in the country and you get to see who owns it and how much they owe and what their phone number is and what their Facebook you know, page is. It's fascinating. I remember you type in a name, I called you one day. I said, how is it so fast that I can type in this name and I see all 300 houses nationwide that this entity owns? And the, you know, so anyway, what's next with Property Radar now? So you've just lost, launched nationally. You were five states for the longest time. Now it's everywhere. What's next on the horizon? Yeah, so we have a um, uh, tax delinquency data goes live in our next uh, release. A number of other things do too, but that's kind of the one of the headliners. So you can find all the delinquent properties, you know, before they hit tax sales. So tax sales usually after five years delinquent. So you can get you can find the ones one year, two year, three year, four year uh, delinquent in between. So we're pretty excited about that. A lot of people are, are getting excited about this idea of list stacking, you know, and they're they're buying a list here and a list here and a list here. And we're saying, hey, those are just criteria. So put foreclosure plus tax delinquent plus vacant plus absentee, put them all together if you want, right? Find uh, find interesting stuff. So we're pretty excited about, uh, about what we're doing um, there. And then uh, lots more in the works, lots more data sets uh, coming. Uh, I've recently bought five additional data sets, which I'm not willing to share yet, but um, that are coming as well. And so we're just continuing to uh, add new data and uh, grow the platform. Yeah. The idea of how, you know, there's, there's throwing money into the economy makes it inflationary. Technology makes it deflationary. There is so much amazing tech and stuff we have now. Just those data sets you're talking about. We have data sets that are like, who's likely to refi a conventional loan six months from now? 
right. who's likely to who's likely to stop making their payments six months from now. They're not in foreclosure yet, but they're starting to have these signs. Or this person's likely to sell. And part of the stat is it's because their youngest kid is about to graduate from high school and they have 200,000 equity. So all those little factors where now the, the, the data says, the data doesn't say this is how we figured it out, but that's the sort of stuff that that data is doing that, that's out there. So technology is really helping the investors. So people out there that are investing, we're talking about investing instead of speculating when you're using Sean's tools or my tools, the, you know, whether, and, you know, real estate agents that are listening on our, on our Rockstars podcast. I was going to say for real estate agents, you know, listing properties too, right now, when there's no listings on the market, right? Like even for your buyers, like starting to use that data to go look for for properties for your buyers. I did this uh, just yesterday. One of my best friends is moving up closely. I've been a broker for 20 years and we went around looking at properties and, and we're driving down the street and he's like, oh, that one has the view I want. That'd be perfect. It looks up at North Star, the mountains in Tahoe. It's got views out the uh, other direction of, of the Sierras. It's just gorgeous, right? And most agents would go, yeah, it's not listed. Sorry, right? I clicked on the property, found the owner, right? And then figured out that two other properties nearby were listed by an agent for the same owner, called the agent. And uh, I think we're going to go into escrow by the end of the week on a property that was not listed. And so, you know, we were turning around looking at listed properties, which there weren't any of them. They weren't excited about any of them. So public records is just a gift. Yeah. Public record, it is fascinating. And for right now, when like the reason uh, I like distressed real estate, but even the public records part is when there isn't any inventory right now, whether you're investors or whether you're agents or anything else, you have to go create the inventory. And people are creating that inventory by, you know, sending out letters that's kind of, uh, it's phishing, right? You're going to send out 10,000 things, you're going to cast a big net and you're going to get a few people to call back in. That's a great model and it's a very profitable model. And we know so many agents and investors that do it. You can also use property data though to like like hunt with a rifle where you're saying, this is the property I want. And you use that example there. Maybe they would be, no one's lived there for a long time. It's a really nice house. Let me figure it out. Okay. This is the owner. Here's another agent that sold it. I can't get a hold of the owner because if the owner owns three houses in Tahoe, they're not easy to get a hold of. But when you found the person that did know them, you're able to get that. That's a cool example. Yeah. I mean, I didn't want to as soon as I realized that uh, owner had other properties, and the main reason I realized is because we were looking at other properties in the area and I saw that owner name before with another agent. Yep. And, you know, as an agent, it's not a good idea to call another agent's client. So uh, that's why I took that extra step. Yeah. The, Otherwise, uh, if I hadn't known, I would have just called the owner because we did have their phone number and I would have called the owner. And the first thing I would ask him is, are you working with anybody? And then that would have also worked. Yeah. Are you working with, are you working with a seller yet? One of the questions that came up in the chat said, you know, what are the unique data points that people should use? And so we talked at the beginning about kind of months of inventory, you know, and just feeling in the market, talking to the builder, talking to the sales agents. Like right now we're still seeing lines out open houses, I think for the most part, any of the other factors that we didn't hit their months of inventory and just feel in the market? You know, I, I think it's really important to watch, uh, you know, policy, especially, you know, in your state, you know, in California, I subscribe to this new newsletter called Cal Matters that does a pretty good job of giving me updates on various uh, bills coming through, especially the ones later in the session that, you know, start to get traction and I can start to see um, what's happening there. I got a little lax on that last year and got surprised by a, a bill that really impacted trustee sales, SB 1037. 
And so I'm back paying a lot of attention to that. It's hard to do in all the states, but in your state, I recommend trying to figure out what's going on with your state legislature and what bills are coming because those have impacts and they can have very local impacts. And, you know, I think if you're going to be making big bets at all, you need to be knowing what, what's happening there. And, and then same thing at the, the federal level, you know, paying attention to what the Federal Reserve is doing and saying and what they thinks, you know, what they're saying they're going to do in terms of rate policy and those kinds of things. I think it's important to keep an eye on those things because like, they can and do change. Yeah. Well, so on the, I think we're a little over our hour. You have a, a few more minutes. Let's have, we'll do Absolutely. a couple more quick questions. So really quick, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, yeah, the new law in California, because I know you guys were talking to all sorts of people because as a, as a trustee sale investor, I hear about this law and I said, that just ruined foreclosures in California. Yeah. And we had a ton of California investors reach out to us and start subscribing to our Texas data this month and I, it, you know, and going to sale. And I was wondering if there was any sort of backlash from that. What's the new law in California? So basically what they did is they created this ability to bid after the bid. So you have the foreclosure auction, right? The investors and folks come down there, they bid it to a price. And then for a period of time after that, Certain folks, nonprofits, the renter in the property, home buyers can come in and bid on that property after they know what the winning bid was at auction and, and outbid it. And, you know, that's interesting in and of itself. Like, why have an auction then just to have an auction? Like, you know, you know, so it's a little crazy. But the the worst part of it was that there was no rules around this after bidding. And it left this state of limbo because in California, if you buy a property at foreclosure auction, you may not get the deed for two weeks, but that deed is dated the day you bought the property, right? So from that date that you bought the property, you're kind of responsible for it if it burns down or whatever. So you have to keep it insured and all the rest. So now you don't learn whether or not somebody outbid you for 45 days, so you buy this property and you've got to keep it insured. You've got to, you know, keep an eye on it. If it's vacant, you might have to secure it, all the rest. And then if somebody else comes in and buys it, you don't get any money back for any of that you do. I mean, you get your bid back, but that's it. So, any, you know, it's just, it's just crazy. I, you know, I ran around and warned all of our investors. I really thought it would be the end of our trustee sale investing business until the law sunsets. It does have a sunset date. And surprisingly, a lot of our investors said, eh, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to see what happens, right? Like there's something about trustee sale investing that's a little bit of a, a roll of the dice. And uh, some of these guys are rolling the dice. And so far it's working out. We're hearing mostly good stories that they're not getting outbid. Nothing bad's happening. I think it's only a matter of time until, you know, a house burns down two weeks after and something, you know. Yeah goes really sideways, but I'm keeping my fingers crossed for them in the meantime. Part of trustee sale investing is, is you get a lot of singles. You get a lot of houses that, you know, if 15 people are bidding against it, you're, the only way you're winning is if you know a secret or if you got something wrong. So it gets really tight. You get these really tight margins. But one of the benefits of trustee sale auction is every once in a while, the auction happens at 10 o'clock and the two guys that were bidding against you had trouble parking. And so you get it for a hundred thousand less than you were. That's the, the beauty of foreclosure investing is one out of 10, one out of 20, you get it for a, just a, a crazy discount. And I think those crazy discounts, which were the bonuses are where maybe we'll start to see that rule. I'm glad that isn't impacting it as much. 
yet. I thought that that would be a, a big impact. One of the next questions said, have we seen issues with the foreclosure moratorium when purchasing foreclosures during 2021? And do, do we foresee complications when the foreclosure moratorium is lifted? I'm going to say that the that for me personally, was buying anywhere between 15 and 25 houses a month at trustee sale uh, up until March of last year. So 15 to 25 a month the being able to, to buy. And I think since then, I've maybe bought five or six houses on the courthouse steps as trustee sale. So the, we've had to totally shift our investments to other ways. So the I've seen a giant change. So it says, have we seen issues with the foreclosure moratorium? There has still sales that have been happening, but the but like Sean had mentioned, you know, trustee sale investors are kind of, you know, a gutsy, interesting bunch. And so the houses that did sell, people were desperate to get deals. People were aggressive on them and and it and it yeah, so I haven't gotten as many. Do we see any for, uh, for complications when the foreclosure moratorium is lifted? I think at the beginning we talked about that we don't think it's going to be a grand unveiling. We don't think it's all of a sudden going to be a ton of stuff. We think even when it gets lifted, it's going to be more gradual. Anything to add, Sean? Yeah, and I, I do think you know part of maybe what he's getting at there too is you know will we see uh, lawsuits against banks and things like that, like oh you don't have the right to foreclose on foreclose on me and, and that thing. I mean. I think one of the unintended consequences of, I think there's good reasons for moratoriums and, and also, but one of the unintended consequences is people start to feel pretty entitled to like be able to stay in their house and not make a payment. And, you know, so what creative lawsuits and other things do we see after the fact? We may see some of that, you know, there's always attorneys kind of chasing those, uh, chasing some crazy scheme. And a lot of times it's just to bilk the homeowner for money, unfortunately, and not really well-founded in law. But we saw a lot of that back in the, in the last foreclosure crisis. So it'll be interesting to see if any of that happens. So I, my last question. So you sold all of your real estate in 05. And the and we can look back. My it, house, it, my wife wouldn't let us sell our house. The, it, well, because personal real estate, you sold your investments in 05. I the, wanted to sell the house too. That's how bad I felt about the whole thing. I'm like I'm out. <laughs> are you a, are you a buyer or a seller today? Would it or you know if you're so that's like the biggest prediction that everybody's saying. Like do I and and I think you said it earlier. If you're an investor, buy. And if you're a speculator, good luck. But are you a buyer or a seller today? Um, I have bought recently, and I would buy again. But again, you know the thing the thing about buying is like what are you buying at right like some of the prices i'm seeing today i wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole and there's other things that like okay there's certain situations and things that happen that i would buy all day long right like it's so it's so hard like am i a buyer for the right thing of course right but that's been true every year in any market and you know would would i be buying you know, and it, it, like the other thing that I do in terms of just like straight up market purchases, not buying at a discount is, you know, friends that come to me and say, hey, you know, we're thinking about buying our home, of buying our first home, right? And uh, same advice I gave in 2006, like if you can afford the house, you plan to stay here five years or more, right? So five years wasn't great advice in 2006, it was still down, but you plan to stay here five years or more, Right and uh, you can make the payment and you're buying with a reasonable financing, right? Like own a house, owning a house is brilliant. All these guys out there, there's a bunch of guys in real estate saying, you know, stupidest thing you can ever do is own your own house. Like, I don't know, like fixing your rent for 30 years. That's what it is. 
Like, and if you can pick a house that you want to stay in a really long time, like you've got fixed rent for 30 years. Like, I don't know how, if there's any rent renters out there in, in this, but how nice would it have been to have fixed rent for the last 30 years? Now, if you're still young and moving around and you don't know where you want to be and you don't know if you want to stay in place, absolutely rent, don't buy. But so I, I think there's two things, right? As a, as buying for yourself, you know, buy as nice a house as you can afford and that you're more likely to stay in for a very long time and keep it a very long time. And it just, it just gets better and better the longer you keep it. I think that's the, the biggest mistake the real estate industry has made has, and I get it, like it creates commissions to get people to, you know, move up, move down, do this, do that. Right. But, you know, maybe not our parents, but our grandparents who bought a house and stayed there 30 years and it was paid off when they retired. Like that's a pretty good financial picture. Yeah. That is, uh, it's such a great, one of the articles we did not get to was rents, big comeback could make inflate, you know, talked about inflation and permanent. We're raising rents right now year over year, an average of 11% on all of our rentals. So when it comes time to renewal, so the, we're, our rents today are 11% higher than they were a year ago when people were signing into those leases next year, we're going to be doing at least 8% again, and maybe 11% again. And, and we've done it since we started buying these houses. So a lot of the rentals I have, I started buying in 2015 and every year we've raised the rent you know, the high, at least 8% and sometimes even higher. And when you think about that, if someone would have bought a house in, in uh, 2015, their payment would still be $1,000 a month. And if they started renting from me in 2015, their rent today is 1475, you know, so it just there, keeps. There's one of the biggest opportunities right now, right? Is you have a lot of folks sitting on multifamily, duplex, triplex that have left their rents the same, right? For a lot of years, haven't kept up with the market, don't know what the market for rents are. And, you know, there's a big opportunity to come in, you buy that price, you may buy it as a premium versus the rents, maybe a terrible cap rate. They think they're getting a good deal because it's, you know, they're selling it at a four cap, but rents are way off. And with some improvements in the rest, right, you can take that to an eight cap. That's huge. That's double. That's Those are some of the best deals we're getting right now. Our, our people, when we find out that the rents haven't been raised in five, six years, and the, we can see that's, that's why it actually feels like we're getting a deal right now, even on that low cap rate. Well, Sean, Sean O'Toole, the, thanks so much for coming on here. I knew we were going to have a lot of fun. If people want to reach out to you and they want to find you, what's the best way to figure out yeah, what's going on with, with uh, Property Radar? Certainly our website, propertyradar.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, email Sean at propertyradar.com. It's pretty easy to get a hold of. I may not always respond super fast, but I do get back to everybody. And uh, yeah, love to yeah. Uh, hear from you. For how many tens of thousands of guys were you know, have subscribed to your software, it's cool to hear how many stories you've had talking to your members and talking to your subscribers about the stuff they're doing. I love doing this, the same stuff with ours. The you know, GoBundance members, thanks for joining us on tonight's call. It was fun to have you there. Real estate rock stars, as always, if you want to learn more about GoBundance, reach out to me. I'll be happy to talk to you about it. The, come find me on, on Instagram. Come ask me all sorts of questions about this one. Maybe we'll have Sean back on in the future as we get to do different predictions. So, Sean, thanks for joining. Real estate rock stars, thanks for listening. GoBundance, thanks for joining us. All right, real estate rock stars. This is Aaron Muchastegui jumping in again to thank you for listening to the show. Hopefully you guys loved listening to that one. And I want to make sure that you know about all of the extra resources that we have. And also we need your help. 
They say podcasts are free. You get to listen to podcasts for free. But what is the cost of that podcast? I would say if I could beg you to pay anything for that podcast, I would say the cost of the podcast is going and giving a review. So whether you download it on Google or Apple or YouTube or anywhere else, please go give us a review. Say what you liked, what you didn't like. It helps us get better guests. The more reviews, the higher we get in the rate rankings. Right now, we are the biggest podcast out there for real estate agents. And we want to keep that spot because we know there's lots of podcasts out there. So go give us a review. Also, be sure to go to hybendigital.com. If you liked any of the resources that those real estate agents talked about, we've got a huge video vault of those resources for free. Every punny that comes on the podcast that we interview, they give us something that helps them get their deals or helps them work with their clients. And we put that in the toolbox in our vault for you. So go to hybendigital.com and you can get it. If you're looking for real estate education, go to rebusuniversity.com. We have all sorts of courses in there to help agents succeed in real estate. How to get the listing, how to negotiate deals, you know, how to become an investor, all sorts of different stuff, rebusuniversity.com. And if you want to chat with me, go find me on Instagram. If you come find me on Instagram, you can send me messages. Tell me what you want to hear. Tell me what you liked, what you didn't like. We try to put a bunch of content out there too. You can find me in two different places. It's at rerockstars.com for our Real Estate Rockstars page or at erinamuchastegui.com for my personal Instagram page where I can chat with you about all sorts of different things. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.